0: What database are you using for your apps these days? If you're like most Python people, it's probably PostgreSQL. If you roll with NoSQL like me, you're probably using MongoDB. Maybe you're even using a graph database focused more on relationships. But there's a new Python database in town. And as you'll learn during this episode, many critical Python libraries have come into existence because of it. This database is called EdgeDB. EdgeDB is built upon Postgres and implemented mostly in Python. It's something of a marriage between traditional relational databases and an ORM. Python's async and await keywords, UV loop, the high-performance I/O event loop, and asyncPG all have ties back to the creation of EdgeDB. Yuri Selvanov, the co-founder and CEO of EdgeDB, PSF fellow, and Python core developer is here to tell us all about EdgeDB, along with the history of many of these impactful language features and packages. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 355, recorded February 16th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via TalkPython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Sentry and SignalWire. Use Sentry to find out about and fix errors when they happen and build real-time next-generation video meeting rooms with SignalWire's API. Transcripts for this episode and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech to text API? Get human level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm/assemblyai. Yuri, welcome to Talk Python to me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We just met recently at Pi Bay down there. So in honor of that, I wore my Pi Bay shirt today. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about about that episode. I probably should, should have worn my t-shirt. Yeah, where's your Pi Bay shirt? Yeah, oh, come on. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> What a cool conference, huh? It is. I love small conferences.
0: I like small conferences. And in the time of COVID and all of this madness, having a winter conference outside in California at a beautiful food cart area where it's warm. Oh, there were just so many things to like about that. I got to tell you, it was great.
1: It was amazing. It was the best day of the year (laughs) for me, essentially. Just being (laughs) able to talk to people finally and uh, see many friends was amazing.
0: We both gave talks there. I talked about Flask and HTMX, and you spoke about building a database engine, a whole database with Python, and that was interesting. So then I I watched a little more, and I just thought, wow, there are a lot of interesting pieces of technology in and around this thing you built called EdgeDB. So I'm super excited to dive into that with you. But before we do, let's just hear your story real quick how do you get into programming in Python? So my co-founder,
1: Elvis, and I met uh, many years ago, probably 14 years ago or something like that, working in a small Canadian company, building big enterprise software for companies like Walmart. Back then, we were actually, like the system that we uh, were working on was written in PHP. And I mean, we pushed PHP to the limits, but we always knew that, hey, uh, when we start our own thing, we will be looking for something new and fresh for us to tinker
0: with. And, uh, we looked around and we just left, like, like Python, uh, liked it a lot. Great syntax. Fantastic. Was that Django? I mean, that's right around the time of the Django growth, or was it something else that brought you in?
1: We started with Django. We played with it a little, uh, but actually like we, we just started, started building our own thing pretty much immediately. Without looking like too deeply at existing
0: frameworks or anything. Yeah, I get the sense that you and your co-founder are uh, framework builders.
1: Yes, yes, (laughs) we are. Somebody (laughs) asked me. uh, Maybe it was Guido. I don't remember anymore. What was your first first thing that you wrote in Python? And I said uh, function decorator. (laughs) I I could just
0: (laughs) jump right (laughs) in. Exactly. Awesome. So, how about now? What are you doing these days? Working on EdgeDB full time. EdgeDB. Yeah. HDB,
1: full-time exclusively, yeah, we're building a great company here, so it requires
0: uh, 100% of my attention. Yeah, I bet it does. It's You can build a business on the side, but it's a hard time. And you have this great article that talks about how you're going to build your favorite new database in a month, but that it actually takes 10 years
1: to do <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was a long, uh, sometimes painful journey. And we didn't uh, realize, like, right off the bat that we will be building a database, right? We were building a Python framework, and a Python ORM, essentially, and granted
0: that ORM was... Right, a better way to talk to databases in Python was your idea, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I guess you didn't have in mind that you would also build the database. (laughs) No idea, (laughs) yeah. Very cool. Well, I think what you built is pretty interesting, and people are going to enjoy checking it out. But... More so, I think what is pretty interesting is there's a lot of things in the Python space that we enjoy and we appreciate, especially what I would consider to be the advantages of modern Python. I don't know how you feel about it. I know you've been deep in this world, but to me, it seems like just two or three years ago, people building frameworks, you know, think fast API or Pydantic or stuff like that, have really embraced. The they've taken full advantage of Python three, right? They said, "Oh, look, we have these typing, we have typing, we have async and await, we have all these things that we can bring together." And, and it really feels like that stuff is all starting to come together in a big way. Is that over the last couple of years? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I also I also have this feeling that data system becomes uh, more and more robust. That people build amazing systems with Python. Uh, I think that asynchronous I O played a part in it for sure. But yeah. I think that the other big thing that is happening to Python right now is uh, strict typing. MyPy uh, and the other similar tools. Uh, this is what actually allows you to manage uh, your code base at scale. And this is just incredibly important. So yeah, those two things I, w- I would say.
0: Absolutely, and you talk, we're gonna get into it when we get into the architecture and stuff, but you talk about using Cython for making yeah. parts of your Python code faster. And of course that relies heavily on typing, because you want to say, here's an int 64. Don't turn it to a pi, you know, pi long object (laughs) pointer. We just want an int 64 that works on the stack really quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's an open question.
1: Will Python ever enjoy strict typing that the uh, Python interpreter actually takes care of to make things run faster or not? But for Cython, it's absolutely critical. And uh, actually, I had this. Sometimes I had this feeling that writing code in Cython is easier than in Python because, hey, I have a compiler. Something mismatches. uh, I know it at the compile time, not at the runtime.
0: Yeah. I suspect MyPy is a little like that as well,
1: right? Exactly. Exactly. So when MyPy started happening, because I was experimenting heavily with Cython before, MyPy became popular when MyPy finally became like this uh, common thing
0: to use. Yeah, it was almost a revelation that we finally have this beautiful workflow with Python. Well, I want to talk about some of the technologies that are sort of surrounding this larger project that you've been working on. So over on GitHub, github.com slash magic stack. This is for, this is your company. uh, And one of the, you know, where sort of EdgeDB and all that is, is coming out of. But there's a lot of interesting things happening here that I think people who see modern Python doing its thing are going to appreciate. We talked about the async stuff and and so on. And so I wanted to kind of dive into some of those first that are sort of orbiting your projects that you all have created here. So. Let's start with Magic Python. Tell us what this Magic Python is about.
1: So Magic Python is a syntax highlighter. It's actually used in VS Code by default. So if you use VS Code and you edit Python in VS Code, this is the stuff that VS Code uses under the hood. It was used by GitHub for years to highlight all Python code. And recently, I think GitHub switched to this three-sitter other Python uh, highlighter. But yeah, Magic Python was, uh, and I guess is, uh, incredibly popular. It was born out of frustration, actually, because we were big fans of metaprogramming. We abused Python a lot in interesting ways. And uh, one of the ways to abuse it was to push some meta information to uh, function annotations. It was before MyPy and before typing. So yeah, we just were like adding stuff to those annotations. And we quickly discovered that built-in syntax highlighters and in TextMate back then. Back then, I was using TextMate heavily. They just couldn't highlight notations. So my goal was to basically, hey, can we create our own uh, syntax highlighter for Python that would just take care of notations, and by the way, highlight all of the newer stuff that is available in Python 3? Because back then, Python 2 was still the king, and uh, Python 3 was kind of barely supported.
0: Interesting. so a lot of the, uh, the highlighters and editors and stuff really would highlight kind of based on Python 2 Exactly. Syntax. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But I You're guess, like, no, it's twenty. What, <laughs> yeah. Whatever this was, was twenty fifteen like or something. Twenty
1: fifteen. Yeah, yeah. It was clear to me that Python three is the future. But uh, yeah, the industry was still kind of moving slowly towards it. But the key innovation of Magic Python, and I think this is uh, why I think it's high quality thing, is uh, unit tests. So uh, I'm a big fan of uh, writing uh, tests and uh, having this test driven development and uh, First thing after like highlighting "Hello World" in uh, in TextMate, first thing for me was to figure out can I actually build like a unit test engine? <laughs> because if you think of those uh, syntax highlighter, it's essentially it's a huge regex. It's just mind-bogglingly like huge, huge, huge regex. And I was thinking about that.
0: Yeah, but modifying that. Well, I, I was thinking. Down the road, you have a really interesting query syntax that's pretty rich and powerful for EdgeDB. Yeah, did your experience writing Magic Python give you the ability to go like, oh yeah, I can, we can write this thing that parses this insane, yeah, sort yeah. of complex language? Like, what, how much did this play into? your ability to go beyond sql i wouldn't say much i mean we have syntax highlighters for our schema files and the
1: hql they're pretty basic right now we just uh, highlight keywords and literals we have some interesting plans about that and we can talk about it later i guess when mm. we'll be talking about htb like implementing language server protocol for hql But the highlighter itself is is pretty simple. But I used (laughs) this unit testing framework in those highlighters. And uh, this is what gives me peace of mind. I know that HQL highlighter is just working when I'm adding like a new operator or a new keyword. I don't have to just uh, test
0: it manually on some big file. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of speaking to that thing that I talked about, a lot of interesting stuff coming out of your work. Adrian out there says, didn't know you also made HTTP tools as well. Indeed, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff That you've done. So final thing on Magic Python, can I use it for other purposes than just VS Code, Sublime, and Atom? Like if I wanted to build my own thing that, you know, printed out like terminal stuff Mm -hmm. or like even some other kind of UI app, could I use this more generally than the editors?
1: I haven't tried it myself, but given that GitHub was using using it to highlight the code, I, I believe that there must be some libraries and packages that just can consume this text made inspired syntax and mm-hmm. just highlight i don't know stuff you print into terminal
0: i, I see think. so it comes out as TextMate, and then it just happens to these three editors with their yeah i think sort of common heritage understand yeah, that yeah yeah, yeah. i, I think
1: textmates started the revolution originally then sublime text just inherited the format and then VS code just decided hey we should just use it um mm-hmm. yeah
0: cool yeah very cool all right so when you spoke about your journey towards creating this product in this business. You talked about how central having asynchronous IO and server work is going to be. And of course that is true, right? Not all databases, but most databases are able to be a point of extreme concurrency to the point that they can like handle the processing, right? So so if you've got a web app, you can scale your web app out. And like, if it's got two connections or 200 connections to the database, generally that's fine. The database is meant to sort of scale that vertically, I guess. Yeah. So you really talked about, well, if you're going to do this in Python, that probably means leveraging async IO pretty strongly, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty clear that we need asynchronous IO. As you said, databases
1: have to handle lots of connections. And also it's important to understand that most databases like Postgres, for example, the cost of establishing a new connection is pretty high. So we wanted, uh, and I mean, there are tools to mitigate that, like PG Bouncer, for example, it's like middleware you put in front of PostgreSQL to make connections cheaper. And we just didn't want to have uh, any of such tools as a requirement for HDB. We just wanted, to, wanted it to work like natively out of the box without any configuration. So yeah, we had to have cheap connections in terms of like how fast you can connect. And also, I mean, if your connection is just hanging out there, we wanted to allow that essentially, so we, ha- we had uh, to have a way to handle thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, just concurrent connections that maybe are not super active, but just, I mean, open. And uh, asynchronous uh, core is the only way how you would be able to do this. Like not even, like if, even if Python didn't have GIL, for example, we yeah. would still use asynchronous IO to tackle this problem.
0: This portion of Talk Python I me mean, is brought to you by Sentry. How would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be encountering errors, slowdowns, or crashes with your app right now? Would you even know it until they sent you that support email? How much better would it be to have the error or performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. And that was a great email to write back. Hey, we already saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at talkpython.fm Sentry. And if you sign up with the code talkpython, all one word, it's good for two free months of Sentry's business plan which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events as well as other features. Create better software, delight your users, and support the podcast. Visit talkpython.fm sentry and use the coupon code talkpython. There's an overhead for threads and the context switching between the OS trying to figure out if that thread still needs to do stuff. Yeah, you can't have hundreds of thousands of threads and be in a good place.
1: Yeah, but my concern wasn't even even that maybe we would be smart and implement some sort of uh, m2 n scheduling or something like that. I don't know. it's just I don't believe that humans are good at writing threaded code. <laughs> Async await gives you this uh, luxury of essentially seeing where you can actually give up control of the current code when it can await things and potentially switch the context right So you can be smart about locking access to shared resources and things like that with threads it's way way harder maybe with the rust it's easier because I mean there is some compile time magic that, that can help you but
0: with pretty much every other language uh, thread based programming is uh, is is very hard it is hard well and i i suspect many people but not everyone out there listening knows that when you use the async io tasks and so on at least by default, they run on a single thread. There's not actual threading happening. When you use threads or multiprocessing, you can get that true concurrency, but this is is different. It's not really threads.
1: Yeah, it's different. Basically, the idea for async await is to is to use it for IO bound code. So if your code is doing like lots of IO, pushing data from multiple connections uh, here and there, this is an ideal thing. But if, you, yeah. if you're computing something like, I don't know, doing something scientific computation or just use blocking IO or disk IO, it's best to offset that computation into a separate process. But yeah, if you just want to handle a lot of IO in
0: Python concurrently, Async I O is the way. Yeah, the way that I like to think of async I O and async and wait is what you're scaling is you're scaling the waiting. If you're waiting on anything, if I'm waiting on a database or waiting in, in the database version for the client to talk to me or not to talk to me, then you can basically take that period where you'd be waiting and turn that into predictive computational time. I love it. I think we should put this uh, like straight <laughs> into the ducks. <laughs> I never I thought about this here. this way. <laughs> because people tell me, I'll see these uh, benchmarks and stuff said, oh, well, I did this thing where I overwhelmed the database and then it didn't go very fast when I did async IO. It's like, well, because there's no period in which you're waiting. Like you're, you're like constraining the resource beyond what it can take. But if there was some sort of, oh, I'm waiting for this thing to get back to me. Well, then all of a sudden there's your, your performance. Okay. So when I saw this come out, I was super excited. I think this was three, four of my history reminds me correctly when this came out. Is that you remember? I think it was around 3.4, because the most important prerequisite... I think so, because 3.5... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. sorry.
1: Yeah, the most important prerequisite for async to happen was actually the yield from syntax. Probably not a lot of people yes. remember about it. But back then, async required this, like, add cortin decorator, and you would use a yield from instead of await in your code. So that pap... So basically, Python 3.3, I think, was a moratorium. On modifying Python language, so we had to wait for Python 3.4 to add yield from,
0: and then async happened. Guido made it happen, right? That that enabled it. But when I remember when it came out, I was like super excited about this, and I saw like, oh, this is a harsh programming model. This is really like direct and juggling those sorts of things. And uh, I had experience with C sharp, which had async and await keywords as well. I'm like, gosh, I wish this language had async and await. And then I didn't know you then, but I thank you. Because you offered authored PEP four nine two co routines with async and await. Basically we have async and await in Python because of you, right? Well somewhat. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I, did. Maybe, I don't want to give you too much credit, but <laughs> I did. Uh, you yeah. created the prep the PEP that said, like let's stop using yield from yep. and yep. continue and all these other things that you do with I can I can tell you the entire backstory.
1: It's it's yeah, relatively it short. Yeah, yeah. So basically we were uh, trying to figure out like the future API for, for, for HTB, Python cloud but uh, Python client back then when HDB wasn't even a thing, and uh, we knew that we want to support async IO in, in, in our future client. But how do you actually have like a migration block? Like you would have to say like, try finally, accept, pull uh-huh. back, commit. It's like a lot of code. And we have context managers in Python, right? So with the context manager, you would just say with transaction and it would it just do all this magic behind the scenes. But we didn't have an asynchronous version of with. We had yield from, but how do you kind of mush together yield from and with wasn't clear. So I I thought, hey, if we had like async keyword, we could have async with. Then it was natural case. We just should replace uh, yield from with await because I was also familiar with C-sharp. And I also liked the short and neat syntax of async await. And then the next thought was that, hey, what if you have a cursor to the database and just want to iterate over the rows and make it like prefetch those rows? And this is how async four was born. And then in about a couple of weeks, Language Summit happened. I think it was in Montreal. That was back US uh, uh, in Montreal. And I met with Guido. I showed him like rough sketch and he said, yeah, let's do it. I think I implemented the first prototype of this thing in the interpreter over a couple of nights. Like I just called it like straight for 48 hours. <laughs> I wanted to impress Guido <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just uh, had this like rough implementation and then just over the course of like months and a half, I was refining it and uh, writing this pep. And this is how it happened. I think it all happened because of Guido, because uh, first of all, he saw like clearly, like this is an improvement to
0: yield from, like a big improvement. It's a huge improvement. It makes it incredibly approachable. It's like you do what you normally do, but sometimes you might have to put the word await there. Exactly. Like, but your mental model isn't about callbacks and weird stuff like that. It's just like you write the regular code, but you sometimes need to await a thing. And it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I'm grateful to Guido
1: because... First of all, he recognized this uh, thing and encouraged me. And second of all, he actually like inspired lots and lots of refinements uh, in, in this proposal. And I was like working with him essentially all this time, like a discussion happened in Python, in Python dev. And sometimes uh, he and I exchanged emails and he proposed some ideas and I would just tweak the path. Yeah, Guido was
0: actually also behind this proposal to a big extent. There's some mind-blowing stuff here, like the async with, for example, (laughs) as you point out, right? These are wild ideas, right? Instead of just calling, just saying, here, there can be a function. You have async for, async with. There's really neat things in here.
1: Actually, yeah. I think that still async with is pretty unique. Like JavaScript, for example, is lucky because they have this uh, nice syntax for declaring anonymous functions, right? And uh, so you can just... uh, say, await transaction and pass a function. And it's like a multi-line function. You can do mm-hmm. whatever you need. You, you don't actually have to have something like async with in, in, in TypeScript or JavaScript, but in, uh, many other languages, you would need something like this and, uh, pretty much, I think we pioneered this, uh, idea in Python, Yeah, I think I saw a proposal to make using async in C sharp. Mm-hmm. But I'm not actively engaged with the Shark community. So I'm not, yeah. Maybe it was implemented, maybe not. I don't know.
0: That would be the parallel, but I'm also not a, not tracking it. Yeah. Okay. And this is really cool. So awesome, awesome work on this pep and getting this language. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk two more async IO things real quick here before we get to EdgeDB. Or actually, one, three. <laughs> one jumped the list just yesterday. Absolutely. Okay. So when you're doing async IO, there's this background event loop that looks at all the things that could be done and says, are any of them waiting? <laughs> Can we take that while it's waiting and put it aside and go do something else, right? That if I scale the waiting story. And there's an implementation for that in CPython. But you all decided, you and Elvis, your co-founder, decided mm-hmm. like it would be nice if there was a faster, more optimized version of that part that does the the checking and execution so you created this thing called UV Loop, an ultra fast async I/O event loop. It's incredibly easy to use, right? Like to install it, two is, it's, <laughs> it's two lines, right? You import and then you run install, and you're you're good to go, which is fantastic. Tell people about uh, UV Loop and how broadly should this just be standard stuff we do in all of our code that uses async and await? It's an yeah, interesting question. Okay, let's
1: let's jump in. So UV Loop wasn't the first thing that I created. The first thing was actually HTTP tools. Someone asked you about it like yeah. a few minutes ago. So I just uh, wanted to experiment with Python. I discovered Cython. I thought, hey, this might actually be a useful tool and allow us to speed up Python a lot for some uh, things like parsing HTTP, for example. Right, so I the, the at, tight loops. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I look at uh, Node.js and uh, they used uh, a C HTTP parser. I think that parser was actually extracted from Nginx. And uh, yeah, just wrapped it. In HTTP tools, it's literally like 100 lines of code, maybe maybe even less, maybe 50. Just like a small wrapper over the C library. And it worked. And it worked great. Then I, hmm, oh my God, I now have this superpower. <laughs> I can quickly. What other
0: things can I grab yeah, exactly, and put into Exactly.
1: Because, I mean, you could do the same, but just like using uh, Python C API, but you would end up writing like 3x, maybe 5x amount of code. And uh, using Scython, just feels like magic. So, yeah, it worked. And then I was like, hmm, interesting. So there is this libuv library that actually powers Node.js and it's cross-platform and uh, it's super fast and Node.js is fast. Maybe, just maybe I can do uh, the same. I can just wrap it into Python and make a drop-in replacement for event. eventually. So I prototype something relatively quickly, maybe in a few days, basically I just implemented like a loop object and call soon basically the staple of the the most basic thing. And it worked, it worked just fine. I was able to implement call later, and then I was able to run a coroutine, like uh, await sleep one, print hello world, and it worked. And then I just, over the the course of next um, several months, I think three, maybe four, maybe five months, just gradually implementing uh, uh async IO API, swearing a lot because I discovered that this API surface is just <laughs> huge. Async IO loop is just—it's an enormous API actually. And yeah, then we uh, we, we posted benchmarks, and uh, I think it went somewhat vir- viral. It was on HN. Yeah. I think it was like post number one on HN for a long time.
0: Yeah, I think Brian and I covered it over on the Python Bytes podcast when it came out. Cause it was, it was big news. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 People were excited uh, specifically because basically we showed that you can write some Python code, like a simple protocol parser, and it would be almost as fast as Go, and sometimes it's on faster than uh, the node which was <laughs> surprising. So yeah, I think a lot of people were excited about it.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So the, the quick takeaway here is. UV loop makes async.io two to four times faster. You've got some benchmarks for different situations and amount of data and so on, yeah. with regard to sockets. So yeah. let's wrap this one up with is that a, a universal statement that you would recommend there? dot uh, uvloop.install? It
1: depends. I think for production it makes a lot of sense to use uv loop, or you should try it because I mean there are still some minor incompatibilities in UV loop that are really hard to track. Uh, maybe there is some behavior difference, or maybe there's a bug simply. You're using something that a lot of people are not using with UV loop, and uh, it's still a possibility. So yeah, use it. Use it with care in production. In local development, I don't think you need it. Like vanilla async.io should be, should be plenty. There is one more interesting thing about UV loop. It's a package. It's a package on PyPI. So if we find a bug, we fix it and we publish a package. You don't have to wait until Python 3.11.7 to get your bugs fixed. Or improvements made, yeah. Or improvements made, exactly. So this kind of suggests that it's a great idea to use evil, but on the other hand, we really haven't had like any emergency releases or anything in a long time. We basically release almost like every year just to catch up with the latest Python version. I would say that loop is pretty stable at this point. Yeah,
0: very cool. Yeah, it definitely seems neat. I think also it's probably a context of when does it make sense, right? If you're running three tasks and that's your whole program, who cares how fast the event loop is, right? It's three tasks. But if you have many, many fine-grained, tons of little tasks and there's lots of, like how complex and how many tasks, like basically how complex is the task coordination job of async IO, right? The more complicated it is, probably the better benefit you'll get from UV loop. What do you think? If you go deep,
1: In the details, I would say it's not so much about juggling tasks around. It is more about performing IO in the most optimal way. And uh, libv is just because it's so so low level, it just uses lots and lots of uh, tricks under the hood to just do IO faster. And the entire loop of like calling callbacks in the loop is just it's a tight loop in C, essentially. So it's much right. faster than than a loop in, in, in Python. So that actually, yeah, those two points. But yeah, the performance improvement is noticeable, usually, very noticeable uh, with the UV loop. Cool.
0: The benefit is if it's literally import UV loop, UV loop dot install, yeah. run your benchmarks comment that line out, run your benchmarks again. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's so easy to, you don't have to commit to it. It's not like, oh, we're going to swap ORMs and try it again. Exactly. Yeah, but uh, I just love packages in
1: Python that uh, do this magic. Like if you remember, there was this uh, package called psycho created by Armin Rigo, creator of PyPy. You just import psycho, psycho install or something like that. And boom, you have like an alternative uh, CPython eval loop. Your program just magically becomes five, 10 times faster. just magic. So uh, yeah, it's it's great when we can do something like this.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Adrian has an interesting question. I know this came up around requests a couple of years ago. Yes, could you give your thoughts on having things as part of the standard library? Basically, having UV loop in this case be part you know be the replacement for async IO rather than having an external package updated independently.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I'm not super involved in conversations like this. I know that Python core developers consider it actually separating some standard library and shipping of them aside. So it can have like its own release schedule. I think it's sort of mitigated with, uh, Lucas Lang actually speeding up, uh, the release cycle mm. for Python now yeah. it's, it's being released like every year. Which is amazing. And I think the pressure is lower now to separating standard library. As far as including UV loop as part of standard library, I'm not sure it's a good idea. First of all, it's entirely in Cython. It's like 50,000 lines of Cython or something like that. We will have to either adopt Cython as like an official standard library tool or rewrite it in C. And if you rewrite it in C, it's going to be 100,000 lines in C or something like that. <laughs> it will be huge. So probably not going to happen anytime soon. Maybe yeah. with things like MyPyC, we can ha- we, we can make it happen eventually. Oh, that's but MyPyC is still pretty early.
0: Right. OK. Yeah, the conversation was had around that with regard to requests as well. Maybe mm-hmm. you're even part of it since you're a core developer. But they decided not to make requests the new HTTP library of CPython because it would hobble requests. Like, it would mean requests could only be changed you know, once every 12 months or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, I think one of the concerns with requests specifically, and I wasn't actively involved in those conversations at all, but I think the concern that I heard was that HTTP is pretty wild and uh, you often need to fix some security issues and bugs and you need to act quickly. And if something as huge as uh, requests and so fundamental as requests was was part of standard library we would just have to be like way more flexible about uh, making bug releases for C Python, And, uh, Python is yep. just, it's, it's such a huge thing, right? Like operating systems bundle with like multiple different, uh, while uh, workflows are centered around it, it's uh, it's just- it, it runs on helicopters in Mars. I mean, come on, there's <laughs> exactly. a lot of, there's a lot
0: of area, edge cases. People are not thinking it, about exactly. it, right?
1: Just uh, upgrading a separate library is so much easier than upgrading the entire Python thing. So yeah, I think this is why packages like requests for sure will stay out of uh, standard library.
0: Yeah. All right, final question on, before we move on from UV loop because it's not even our main topic, but it is very interesting. Teddy asks, are there any uh, trade-offs of using UV loop as opposed to the native built-in one.
1: I think this is time for me to make a shout out because we still, uh, haven't implemented a couple of APIs, uh, in, uh, that are in async like API balls protocol, maybe there is something else. I just haven't got time to do it myself. We are busy with, uh, with SGB. So if anyone wants to join the project and help, that would be great. And that basically yeah. answers the question. The fundamental APIs are all, already all there it's uh, almost 100% compatible with uv loop no uh, with vanilla async io no trade-offs except there are a couple of uh, uh relatively new apis i think by 39 and path 310 that are still missing from uv loop and that we we still should implement them yeah to be a true replacement right yeah like... i think it's sent file and happy uh, eyeballs and maybe something else
0: okay uv loop is running inside EdgeDB. yeah it powers the the io server
1: Basically, we, okay. we, we use multiprocessing architecture in HTTP, we have a pool of compiler processes because this is like computation CPU heavy thing to compile a query. And then there is a core IO process that just runs UV loop and quickly, quickly, quickly goes through your connections and pushing the da- data between clients, posts,
0: nice. etc. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by SignalWire. Let's kick this off with a question. Do you need to add multi-party video calls to your website or app? I'm talking about live video conference rooms that host 500 active participants, run in the browser, and work within your existing stack, and even support 1080p without devouring the bandwidth and CPU on your users' devices. SignalWire offers the APIs, the SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest of real-time voice and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. Their core products use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST, making them ideal for apps where every millisecond of responsiveness makes a difference. Now, you may wonder how they get 500 active participants in a browser-based app. Most current approaches use a limited but more economical approach called SFU, or Selective Forwarding Units, which leaves the work of mixing and decoding all those video and audio streams of every participant to each user's device. Browser-based apps built on SFU struggle to support more than 20 interactive participants. So SignalWire mixes all the video and audio feeds on the server and distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. So you can build things like live streaming fitness studios where instructors demonstrate every move from multiple angles, or even live shopping apps that highlight the charisma of the presenter and the charisma of the products they're pitching at the same time. SignalWire comes from the team behind FreeSwitch, the open-source telecom infrastructure toolkit used by Amazon, Zoom, and tens of thousands of more to build mass-scale telecom products. So sign up for your free account at talkpython.fm slash SignalWire and be sure to mention TalkPython to me to receive an extra 5,000 video minutes. That's talkpython.fm slash SignalWire and mention TalkPython to me for all those credits. Another thing that came out just today, I know this is... I don't want to spend too much time on it, but there's a a big new feature for tasks and async IO in Python 3.11 coming very soon. And you just gave a shout out on Twitter yesterday saying that task groups is coming to async IO. This is a way, because right now, if you start two tasks, there's no way to say, well, if this one fails, don't even bother running that one, right? They're fully independent. This is a way to sort of create a, Dependency and control them as a set, right? Tell us qu- real quick about this.
1: Yeah, we have an API for spawning tasks concurrently. It's called Async Gather, but it's just uh, a suboptimal API in many ways. And uh, this API is like way superior. We have to credit Nathaniel uh, J Smith. For his work on Trio and Trio Nursery specifically, and uh, Trio is—I mean—we can run an entirely different podcast episode just about. <laughs> I actually Trio had Nathaniel to...
0: on. Yeah, we talked about Trio on, on the show quite yeah. a while ago when it was fairly new. It's an amazing thing, and uh, there are lots and lots of great ideas in Trio. One of
1: them is having this uh, thing—it's called Nursery in Trio—and the uh, async uh, and the. Uh, Task groups, Async, task groups, essentially they just replicate this uh, nursery idea. They port it from Trio to, to AsyncIO. Like the, the bigger points about how this API works are all similar to Trio. There are some details about how cancellation works, etc. but most people probably won't really care about that
0: one. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. It's great to see more innovation yeah. happening in the uh, AsyncIO.
1: Yeah. But task groups, I'll just talk for like a couple more minutes about task groups. So task groups was like oh, yeah, a more yeah, requested thing. A lot of people wanted task groups, uh, in, in async.io and I was DM, like, sometimes I was DM'd like on a daily basis entirely, like we promised us task groups, when can we have our task groups? So the big like elephant in the room with task groups is how do we handle exceptions because multiple things can fail yes. at the same time. And the essential will propagate out of this async with task group.
0: You know, you'll end up with a, um, hierarchical tree of exceptions exactly. representing the state of failure, which is is not how we typically think of exceptions.
1: Exactly, exactly. And we just had to figure it out. And we had to figure it out in the core because if it was just some, I don't know, some uh, exception class defined in asyncio, then what would happen when when your asyncio program crashed, right? You wouldn't have like a correct uh, traceback in your terminal. You wouldn't be able to understand what actually happened. So we had to integrate this into tracebacks, into like uh, debug. We needed to make sure that it's like a standard thing that tools like Sentry, for example, can take advantage of it and uh, uh, provide you like great visibility into what happens in your ASync application. So we had to work on this exception group thing. And uh, there is this um, amazing new core developer, read Katriel, and she spearheaded uh, this uh, effort of just uh, implementing this and uh, drafting a proposal and just uh, doing it to, to completion essentially, and it's because of her work, actually, task groups are finally a thing because task groups themselves, it's like 100 lines of code. There is, um, with comments, there is not much to them. The huge thing is getting exception groups in, and I believe Python is the first language that has this feature, like, uh, right in its syntax, right in it's, uh, Runtime model. And this is also huge because I, I actually believe that Python now can be like one of the best languages to do concurrent programming in. I don't know, maybe when we have JIT or something like that, it might actually match uh, Go in performance somewhat. Yeah. It would be ideal thing.
0: So while I'm looking at this syntax here, which I'll try to quickly simply communicate to people listening on audio, it's an async with block. So what you do is you say async with async dot task group and you create this task group and then you can create tasks within there that are all grouped together. And then you also can do things like await stuff while you're in there. It looks to me like one of the things that often I don't see possible in Python's async previously is the ability to just fire off a task and have it sort of just run in the background to completion. So you don't have to do like async or like run all or gather or, or yeah. any of those types of things. Basically the with block, we won't exit the with block until all the tasks are finished or till it fails. One of those two, right? Yeah. That's it's a cool a feature nice. of it alone to just kind of say like I don't need to kind of store up all the tasks and then make sure I'm waiting on them forever. Like I can just kick them off and then like if they happen to start in this place, then they're going to finish when this with block finishes. I'm even more excited about this than I was before.
1: Right, right, right. It's a nice it's a nice API to compose things in async.io and uh yes. I believe it's one of the bigger deals in for Ecoscayo in the recent years. So I'm super excited about this.
0: Three Eleven is out soon, exactly. Sure, the release date. I know it's in alpha stuff right now, so it's getting real near. Yeah, yeah, it should be, should be close. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. All right. Last thing before we get to EdgeDB proper, people, I, I would say that Postgres is the most popular database for Python people doing database things possibly with the exception of SQLite, but that really counts for just like, oh, I'm doing testing or, oh, I use this for this incredibly small, but like production level stuff got to be Postgres, right? Yeah, yeah. It's fair to say. Yeah, maybe throw in some MySQL and then like a little bit down, maybe some MongoDB, something like that. But like, clearly it seems like Postgres has a lot of interest for folks. If you want to talk to it through um, async and await, which is exactly how you want to scale your database stuff, a pretty popular library is this one called AsyncPG, right? Yep. 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 <laughs> yeah, you and Elvis created that, huh? Yeah. So, yeah, it was uh, an interesting experience, basically. We knew
1: that the uh, EdgeDB will be based on Postgres. That was clear, day one. And uh, we also knew that we have to have, like, this uh, a very high-performance uh, bridge, essentially, between Python and uh, and, and Postgres. So, and uh, it has it had to be asynchronous. So there was no good asynchronous client. For uh, Postgres back at the time, and we couldn't just use psycopg, uh, the most popular Postgres driver, because it uses text encoding for data. Uh, maybe not mm. anymore, but it used to have that. Uh, used to use uh, text encoding, and we actually had to use binary for something. So we just knew that okay, we have to just jump in and explore Postgres protocol. And we decided okay, let's write a driver. The, yeah, this is how asyncpg was born. I think what makes asyncpg different, just besides that. It implements binary protocol and it's asynchronous. It's API because we were not basing it on uh, the common Python DB API. We basically designed an API to be as low level as possible, as close to Postgres semantics as possible. So in DB API, there is this thing called cursor, which has nothing to do with the actual database cursors. So we didn't want to replicate that. So yeah, we just uh, built like uh, what we thought were proper primitives working with Postgres as efficiently as possible. We use binary protocol plus as, uh, AsyncIO, and uh, we of course use Python to speed up like all the bottlenecks in it. It's pretty much entirely in Python, actually. And uh, yeah, the result is just uh, amazing to this day. AsyncPG is like one of the fastest uh,
0: Postgres clients on the planet across all languages. That's fascinating. You can see that it beats Node.js and Go Pretty handily there. Yeah, we should probably update this chart,
1: actually. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they <laughs> updated PG library for Node.js, so this is yeah. outdated. I think it's closer in performance to async PG, but uh, I, I think async PG is still the fastest.
0: Yeah, cool. Awesome. Well, very nice work there. And so taking all these together, UV loop, async and await in the language, async PG, all of these are building up your skills to sort of almost build a database. And so then you went on and actually did build a database, right? Yeah, pretty much. So we had this uh, framework, which was like almost an ORM
1: in Python for many years. And we built multiple different production applications with that. We shipped applications that were deployed to GE, Cisco, companies like that. And Mm -hmm. uh, we knew it's something interesting, but we also knew that uh, it has to be bigger than just a Python ORM. Like it has to be a database. It's a surprisingly long road to make something, to to go this path, essentially, because you have to define a query language, you have to define type system, you have to define standard library, you have to define protocols, how it works, how migrations work, all the different syntaxes for schema modeling. It's a huge thing. And uh, yeah, with like all the right primitives in Python itself, we knew that we can start like morphing our code base into like this separate service, essentially. And, uh, yeah, that was the, the necessary and required uh, groundwork to make HDB happen. Without it, we would probably not succeed. Cool. So, HDB really written in Python? It is most mostly, mostly, yeah, 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 mostly. Entire like IO service server is essentially a Python thing. So, it's in C. And this is why, if you look at benchmarks of HDB, it's actually pretty close to Postgres, to vanilla Postgres. Like the overhead of HDB is, is super low. That is only possible because of Cython and like all low level tips and uh, tricks that we learned when we were working on UV loop and the uh, PG. So we really optimized it a lot. The compiler yeah. part, the thing that actually takes an HQL query and compiles it to SQL. That thing is pure Python and it runs in a separate process. But we do some also tricks to make it fast. Like we cache things aggressively. I mean, in most applications, you don't have thousands of queries. You only have like 10, 50, 100. Yeah. So they get uh, cached pretty quickly and then you don't even run Python anymore. From that point on, it's just C.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, the, you don't need to incredibly optimize the, the understanding of the query, because like you said, it's not ad hoc stuff happening. That happens at scale.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's great when your compiler is exceptionally fast, but for a database and especially if it's uh, smart around uh, extracting constants, let's say you send select one and then your next query is select two, essentially it's the same query, subsequently the same query, just different constants. So if you extract it and you cache the compiled query as if this wasn't a constant, but an argument to the query then, yeah, you don't need to compile it for the second time. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I don't know Postgres super, super well. But I know some databases, they, at their level, when they see a query, they're like, oh, I've seen this query before. They can cache the query plan and those types. of. So that's like another level of performance and speed up as well, right? We do that as well. And, um, I mean, we did it. Even in async PG, for example. Async
1: PG automatically prepares statements for you to enjoy this optimization so that Postgres uh-huh. doesn't have to reparse your SQL query. It can just execute the pre-cached plan. We do the same in, in HDB and uh, many other things. This is why HDB is kinda of, it's based on Postgres, but it fully envelops Postgres because we want to be f- in, in like full control on the underlying
0: Postgres instance. Right. So in some sense this is a brand new database that's got some really cool features that I'm gonna ask you about. Very soon. Absolutely. But in the other sense, it's got a lot of stability because it's kind of a a database-level API rethinking of a well-known core that people already trust.
1: This is an interesting thing. Actually, a lot of people are not 100% satisfied with relational databases for a variety of reasons. Somebody, yeah, <laughs> yeah somebody is not satisfied with, uh, scaling, some, uh, not satisfied with SQL and, uh, some mm-hmm. not satisfied with migrations and how rigid the schema is and how inconvenient it is to, to deal with a relational database. So it's a huge problem. You have a part of it, which is just language design and like standard library and type system, how that part works. The second is workflows around your database. The third is the engine of your database, like how, how it actually works. EdgeDB wants to challenge everything, but we're also not dumb enough to challenge everything at the same time. We understand <laughs> that just writing this whole thing from scratch is impossible. No company in the world would be able to pull it off. Well, maybe some companies would be able to,
0: but they're definitely not a startup. But they have many, many employees. <laughs> exactly. And they're <laughs> probably public giant tech companies. Companies. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So for us, the only viable strategy was to pick a database that is already trusted, that is already fast and uh, universally loved, which is Postgres. And it's also in- incredibly capable. And just build on top of it. And it's not actually a new approach in databases. Like lots of databases actually are built on like primitive key value databases, uh, like LevelDB or something like that. It's a, it's a popular approach. We're just taking it further. We are saying that, Hey, using a key value storage won't buy us much. We are like high level programming language uh, requires a lot of code to be written, to, to properly be executed in, in, in good time. But SQL looks like this
0: nice compile target. So this is why we use Postgres. Yeah, very cool. Kind of the TypeScript to JavaScript equivalent of the database query language in a sense.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, sometimes I explain HDB as LLVM. Like, imagine LLVM. It compiles your high-level code to low-level code, and then it shit, it, et cetera. And the uh, yep. same about HDB. We compile your our, like high-level schema to like a proper normalized table layout. We compile our hql high-level query language down to sql and that sql can actually be jitted by postgres so essentially ultimately your hql might uh, be executing with like
0: at native code speed not now
1: but in the future
0: so what's the elevator pitch for people who are out there they're slightly you know not super thrilled about the database they're necessarily using whatever that is and they're kind of exploring i picked up a few (laughs) things that i think make it unique but i want to ask you it's it's your baby all right i guess i'll give two pitches. One is super high level and uh, one is slightly more,
1: lo- more low level. A super high level pitch is that imagine you have a tool and when it's a great tool, it becomes an extension of your hand essentially. You just you don't notice it. You just do things, right? Current databases are not like that. They acquire lots and lots of uh, mental overhead to work with them. Like, what ORM library do you use in this language?
0: Right. Is there lazy loading and N plus one stuff I got to consider or is it not and all those kinds of things? Exactly.
1: And then you have to learn their API and then you have to learn SQL and understand how those things interact with each other. And then you have to care about deployment and migrations. It's just so much headache. This alone explains why MongoDB was so popular and is so popular because. A lot of people just decided, okay, to help with that. I, I don't want to deal with this. No, I'm uh, leaving
0: the relational space altogether. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Just
1: just abandoning this 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 <laughs> <laughs> the train. Yeah, and we want to fix all of that uh, in HDB. We want to give you a tool that you just don't notice. We want to give you a data model that is just that just feels native to Python or TypeScript or Go or any other language. You don't have to think in tables anymore. We want to give you a query language that is. Super easy to to use and learn and uh, and compose and build query builders around. And essentially, we want to essentially kill the entire concept of or It's uh, we don't we don't need it anymore. We are almost sorry that ORMs have to exist <laughs> in a way. I, I was going to ask incredibly you about that. Yeah. Difficult problem. Yeah. This problem is called object impedance mismatch. There, mapping yeah. tables to like objects. It's it's a super hard problem. I feel sorry that they have to go through this. But we just looked at this problem and decided, hey, can we actually just solve this object impedance problem in a different way? Can we just avoid solving it entirely? Can we just give you a database with the proper high-level data model that doesn't have this problem at all? And then
0: suddenly you don't need ORMs. Let's talk real quick about the actual way you define what would be the equivalent, I guess, of like a DDL table create script or somewhat related to that, maybe closer, is like an ORM class, like it's kind of the... Okay, can I start a little from afar? Yeah, yeah, let's start back. Okay, okay, now it's going to be the second pitch, which is slightly, okay,
1: slightly more detailed. So we say that HDB is a new kind of database. It's, uh, it's not just relational. We call it a graph relational database. Essentially, we are saying that we created an extension to the, to the relational model. So what actually constitutes the object, the graph relational model? It's first of all, in uh, uh, all of your like rows, all of your tuples in your relational algebra, they essentially have a globally unique key. Now, this is a requirement. So data independent is just UUID essentially. Every row in your database will have it. This is the first requirement, first modification. The second extension is links, the idea that that links between data is like a first class citizen of the model you don't need join you don't need foreign key you just know that hey if this type links to another type it's just going to be like a relationship between the unique IDs. this is what unique IDs gives you give you and a second thing is the third thing is that everything is a set this uh uh like uh, if you have an object that uh, is connected to multiple other objects. This is a set of objects. Uh, if you have an object that has a bunch of properties, then a set of properties. Even a single thing is a set as well. And this what later enables HQL to be super composable. But these are just like three simple kind of axioms that are in the core of the model. So if you if we talk about like this schema snippet where we have an object type block post with required property content which is text, and required link author, which is another type called user. It's going to be compiled to a table in SQL with a column called content, with a column ID, which is going to be a unique UUID for every blog post that will have it automatically. It's immutable, it's read-only, you don't have to create them manually. And uh, user will also be a table, will also have IDs, and uh, then we'll have a separate column, which is going to be called author. Which you will have IDs of users. So yep. ultimately, ultimately, like deep beneath what you see in HDB is like this high level schema, it's all compiled properly to the relational model. It's all normalized there. We're still relational. We still like exhibit like the same the same characteristics. It's just we're hiding a lot of this like low level things that you had to bother with, with this high level model, just abstracting away the low level stuff.
0: Is there a way to directly connect to that? Relational uh, view. Uh you mean Postgres? The underlying Postgres? Yeah, other ways? yeah, yeah uh, like the underlying not I'm yet. not sure even that's necessarily a good idea. <laughs> but you know, like in SQL Alchemy, there's a way to go like, I, I just need to get out of here and send raw SQL for a moment. Right? Like that feels like that's kind of the same. I just need to go to the guts for a minute.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with HDB, the goal is for you to never actually need that. There is just one exception to this. Just one exception.
0: Ideally, yeah. Okay. But basically,
1: our goal with HQL, like we, we knew that, first of all, we have to elevate the data and, and make it more high level. And second of all, we knew, we knew that, hey, order for a relational database to be successful, it just has to have query language, right? And because our data model is different, we have to come up with our own. This is how HQL was born. Mm, and yeah. we spent years designing HQL. And the reason why is because we wanted it to be actually more powerful than SQL in many ways. Basically, if you have something that is expressible in SQL, but isn't expressible in SQL, be treated as a bug immediately. If something is easier to do in SQL than in HQL, it's a bug. And this is why we spent so many years kind of refining this thing to make HQL a capable uh, thing. So basically, you never need to, to use SQL. You don't need to know about SQL or know about it, its, its existence. And this is a powerful thing, because when you use a norm library, you have to know about SQL. With SGB, no, you just learn one language, you're good to go for the rest of your life, essentially. There's just one yeah. use case when you might need SQL. It's when, let's say you're a big company and, uh, you're using some BI tools like, uh, Tableau or something like that. Have analysts that already know SQL and we're going gotcha. to do about, and we're going to do something about, it. we're going to open like, uh, uh, especially like an like, adapter like, adapter exactly exactly it will yeah, allow yeah. It to just run sql against the database in read-only mode
0: sure that makes a lot of sense because there are these tools these big bi tools yeah. and you're like if your data is here do you really want to like have some job to move it to another postgres exactly. just to run an analysis on it yeah exactly exactly i mean
1: just like with uh, us not attacking this problem all at once and implementing the engine and the language and everything else here, we also understand that we are not going to replace uh, all the business intelligence infrastructure overnight yeah. and uh, yeah, we have to make it
0: compatible. It's not there yet, will be a part of uh, a future release. Eventually, you'll have a nice roadmap, which we'll cover in a minute. But like, I really love that. Oh, my God. It's so outdated. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) I can just
1: uh, say it out loud, like the ideas that.
0: But let me, let me like just for people want to see if they go there just visually the way that you've laid this out of like where you are and where you're going. Like so many libraries and products should model this because. So often, you know, you'll reach out to the companies, hey, it'd be great if you could do this. Oh, yeah, it's on our roadmap. Like, oh, yeah, well, what is that? Like, some, where do you even have that? So, anyway, I think your roadmap is great, but give us the update. It is, it is beautiful. And I encourage everybody to go and check it out at it's
1: slash roadmap. It's, it is slightly outdated. Well, lots of things that are in progress were already
0: done. Yeah. This Formula Car here, this is a, a 2021 series. They just redid the Formula One cars for 2022. So, yeah. But no, that's probably not what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so,
1: tell us what's coming for for this? What's coming? It took us years for building HDB 1.0 and uh, during this time we were almost encouraging people not to use HTTP because it's a relational database if you build a business on an alpha version of relational database and it goes down your business will go down with it most likely. And people should know you just released 1.0 yes. right? That's a yes. huge Huge thing! Yeah, we launched 1.0 a week ago. Uh, It was on Hacker News uh, number one for like 13, maybe 14 hours. Uh, Wow, it was a pretty, pretty interesting event. We also had uh, a live stream us launching it, talking about uh, architecture of HDB, of the query language, comparing it to SQL. It's a great event, and I encourage you to uh, check it out if you have time and if you're interested. It's YouTube slash HDB. Check it out; you'll find it there. But yeah, so it took us years to do 1.0 just right, to make sure that HQL is right, that its design is sound, and that uh, the schema is right, and the workflows, and CLI, and the cloud APIs, everything is just right, and that we are confident that, hey, we're not going to be changing it, we're not going to be retroactively fixing things. Took us a long year, uh, many years, but now it's up. And now we don't want to spend many years on HDB 2.0. We actually want to make it uh, way quicker. We have this solid foundation. We can iterate much faster now, and this is what we're going to do. So our like current target, internal target is to release 2.0 sometime in May, 2022. So relatively soon, 2.0 will have uh, a few features. One is almost implemented, uh, it's a group by statement. As I said, uh, the idea of HQL is to actually surpass SQL capabilities. And right now with HQL, it's already incredibly powerful. You can fetch that data her- hierarchies. You can compute things. You can use aggregate functions. You have subqueries. you have JSON. Like it's an incredibly powerful language right now. But a proper group by statements will give it uh, like proper analytical flavor. Now you will be able to actually create reports and we have a great group by design. By the way, we try to make HQL design process as open as possible. We have RFCs, it's uh, github slash hdb slash RFCs. So if you're interested to look at how our group by is different from SQL group by and why it's better than SQL group by, you can just go ahead and read an RFC about our group by. So group by is going to be one thing second thing is going to be a proper explain for your queries, like, uh-huh. why is my query slow? We have some ideas on how to make it less cryptic than the default explain output that you get in most databases. But then there is an exciting thing, and I hope that we'll have enough time to implement it, uh, which is access control. So, HDB is this, like, vertically integrated thing. So, you define your schema, and in your schema you can define aliases, which is basically a view in your uh, relational database. You can define fields or object types that are computed dynamically with HQL, so schema depends on HQL and HQL depends on schema in HDB. They are intertwined. So we have this idea, and it's not, not that it's like super new, but in HDB it's gonna be super powerful, is that you'll be able to specify different policies on your schema type. Like, allow reading something, or allow mutating something, or disallow, etc. Right. And uh, we don't want to hard code that. So essentially, we are introducing this concept of context in a database. You'll be able to define sort of like global variables, like context variables in your schema, say, a uh, user ID in 64 and something else Stir. And uh, then when you just uh, get your connection in your Python code, you say, with context, pass user ID. That is automatically passed to the database in your schema. You can implement arbitrarily, arbitrarily access logic on your uh, schema type, and this logic will be automatically enforced in all your queries. So oh, fantastic! Uh, yeah, fetching that's data really cool. for the home page is filtered. You're uh, fetching data for report, and it only includes the data that your business logic allow it to be uh, there. So basically, uh, with HDB, we'll have schema, and that schema not only will define just the data layout of your application, but also the access patterns and many other things in the future.
0: Yeah. I really want to ask you about the the query syntax because yeah. I find it super interesting, uh, especially also how it relates to like um, ORMs and so on. But Michael out in the audience has a pretty neat question that sort of follows on to the roadmap first. So since EdgeDB is fundamentally Python, it'd be great to have a way to run user-defined functions in Python against still so like... Stored procedures, but Python, yeah, not SQL, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. I mean, user-defined functions.
1: Well, first of all, there are like a couple of different planes I would say of user-defined functions in, in the context of HDB because HDB has this uh, notion of extensions. The API isn't public yet, but HDB, for example, supports GraphQL natively. You can just uh, run HDB, let's say, on port five five five. It's gonna be localhost colon five 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 slash db my DB slash graphql we want you to be able to also define potentially eventually like user defined uh, api handlers there so that with hdb you would not need a backup at all
0: if uh, your uh, business logic is relatively simple and you don't need like a full-blown application oh interesting so if i've got like something on netlify where it's pure static code i just write a little javascript some view or whatever and it could theoretically do read-only stuff, maybe, to an HDB instance or something like or that. Even, or even write-only, yeah,
1: absolutely. We just want to kind of push this idea of back-endless development as as far as we can. And because HDB has this incredibly like powerful schema and will soon have access control, that already allows you to eliminate a lot of code, right? So if only you could define some simple server side, database side functions, a little bit of Python in there. I'm starting to come around. Yeah. A little bit of Python or JavaScript or maybe Rust or something that you can just make that request to Stripe API, do something and then glue things together. Then maybe you don't need the backend at all. So this is our vision eventually to allow things like and second plane is user-defined functions within the database. And because we're using Postgres, those yeah. functions are going to be running like inside Postgres, you will be able to call them from the query language, like, hey, use NumPy to crunch this data for me, like right in SQL. this is also possible. There are extensions for Postgres that allow you to do that. Uh, it's possible to define uh, user-defined functions in Postgres, multiple different ways. extensions for that are there. So, yeah, it's uh, an interesting thing for us to think about. And we are thinking about it, but probably not for 2.0. Yeah. Okay.
0: Very cool. Let's talk about this statement here for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> this query syntax highlights a lot of probably what makes HDB unique and some of your motives here. So this, if you wanted to go and get, say, a movie, which has a, a relationship to an actor's table, and you want to do some sort of filter type thing, you would say select movie, curly brace, look at that, title, that's the select projection, so movie.title basically, and then actors, curly brace, name and email. So is that, is this part right here, this the this sub-actors, is that traversing the relationship, that exactly. graph relationship?
1: Exactly. You're okay. basically traversing the graph.
0: And then so inside the select statement, yeah. you say order by.name, and you have this cool convention mm-hmm. of dot, which if you're in one of these scopes, like curly yeah. bracket actors, then... You can say dot and it means dot name applies back to actors that, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: And basically this is just syntax sugar. Nothing prevents you from spelling it out completely. Like you say, you can say order by movie dot But because yep. you're already in inside the actors essentially, we're just like giving you this. Yeah, name.
0: fantastic. Then another thing that stands out for the query syntax is you can define inline variables using the walrus operator, by the yeah. way. Which is kind okay. Of <laughs> <laughs> so you can say average review equals math mean. Rev, dot reviews mm-hmm. of the movie, then dot rating. And is this also traversing exactly is, what, so, what is this?
1: Yeah, so basically, uh, a movie uh, type has uh, a multi link reviews, so multiple reviews can be attached to movies, and every review has, let's say, five star rating an integer of one to five. And this is how you quickly can say, Hey, just uh, calculate the mean number of uh, all linked reviews and all their ratings. Somebody on Hacker News years ago aptly called HQL as a child of SQL and GraphQL. And I mean, it's it's funny, (laughs) but there is truth to it because GraphQL made it Extremely obvious to people that working with object hierarchies this way, when you can just have a query that just selects something deep, right, is extremely important. People suddenly realize this, this is cool. Some companies even try to make GraphQL work for relational databases such as Hasura, and they have an amazing product. The only problem is that GraphQL isn't actually, it wasn't, it wasn't designed for querying databases. It's, it's an API language, it's a REST replacement. So while it works for some things, good luck computing something in GraphQL, you just can't, you can fetch things, but you cannot compute. Like your average review is, is not possible to do in in GraphQL. SQL on the other hand is, is very stubborn when you have to select anything nested. Like things in tables, you have to think in tables, you either like select super wide tables, and then you have to write some Python code to kind of combine it back to your shape or use a norm, or if you. Use an advanced database. You can things like you can use things like arrayag but SQL isn't isn't it doesn't shine problems like this. So with uh, HQL, we're kind of marrying uh, those both worlds. You have this uh, deep fetch syntax, and uh, you have an ability to drop computation in any at any point of your query. There are a couple of other like super important things about HQL, If you want, uh, I can. Go into them. Yeah, we're getting short on time, but yeah, go ahead. Sure. As I said before, sometimes the pitch HDB is like this LVM thing, like compiler. When we compile HQL query to a SQL, we have one important thing every HQL query, no matter how complex it is, it's always compiled to just one SQL query. And this is very important in the context of relational databases because when you have just one single query, it's atomic. So you don't need like an an explicit transaction. You're already like working. You you always work with the same snapshot update essentially.
0: Interesting. So you're not in this case like going doing a query for the movies and then doing a query for the actors and then doing a query for uh, the reviews as three steps. You're just. It's basically a, a three-way yeah. join and then you're getting the data back out, something it's like that.
1: slightly more complicated than a three-way yeah, join. Yeah, I'm sure but, it is. <laughs> but yeah, basically, basically, yeah, that's that's the idea. We, we, for one SQL query, it's always one SQL query. It's very important. We use lots of interesting tricks to make it happen. And if you're interested about those tricks, YouTube slash HDBs and uh, watch our Live Event, we explain this all, actually. But it's an important thing. And then HQL is actually, uh, it's very composable. So you can pack multiple different queries into one query, so you can have a query that reads data, insert data, mutates data, and introspects the the, the the schema, all in one huge thing. And it will execute quickly for you and return your data like in proper way, ready for you to be consumed. So, HQL is extremely powerful in that regard. This is what separates it from ORBs because your ORM, yeah. be it SQL Alchemy or Prisma or something like that, they might have a high level API for some operations, but They also don't really restrict themselves on how many queries it will take to implement that API.
0: sometimes N plus one. Yeah.
1: Right. And if you benchmark (laughs) it on localhost, for example, databases on your laptop and your code executes on laptop, it appears to be fast. So you have three queries instead of one. So what, like there is zero latency between your database and your code. And probably not full production levels of data. Sure. But when you move it to the dot data center, you will have latency between your code yeah. and the database. And even if you have like one millisecond latency between your queries, suddenly you just start losing performance a lot because your, your Python that uses, uh, or JavaScript that uses a norm operation, you can actually fire like 10 queries. This, this is, this is easy. Like 10 queries is fine. And imagine just spend 10, 10 milliseconds yeah. on just doing that, just
0: latency, nothing else, yeah. You're just losing performance. So with HDB, it's not a thing. All right. So final question here: When I run run this, what do I get back in Python? Obviously, there's a, a nice async and synchronous Python API to talk to this. Yep. But when I run this query in Python, what do I get? It depends on how you run it. <laughs> we <laughs> offer you two modes, essentially two output modes. Any
1: HQL query can be compiled as JSON in our Python client. You just say query JSON. And it will return okay. you JSON data, like ready to be pumped to your front end. Or you can just say query. And when you say query, it will return you rich Python objects. So you'll have movie Python object, which with a title a string attribute with an actor's list, which will have actors objects within it, etc. It's also very compact, like on the I.O. level. So we are not sending like super fat tables or anything. The data is neatly serialized. So no need for any yeah, duplication, matters, yeah. anything. It's just like you have your native object data model in the database, you query it, and you get objects out of it. So you never have to think about like
0: any tables or anything. It's always high level. Nice. All right. Final question, then we really do have to wrap it up. One of the things that's really nice about ORMs is I can say my thing dot, and I get a list in my editor of what yeah. I should be getting back from the database. Can I do that with this? I know like the movie is basically defined in the graph well schema definition uh, it, is, there it, uh, is there a way to do like a typeshed type thing yeah EdgeDB. sorry yeah in the edge db schema language but is there a way to do like a typeshed thing to say well that thing you get back looks like this yes
1: unfortunately not in python yet in typescript we just released our query builder and it's uh, insane because the api of the query builder super closely replicates the the, the layout of uh, the HQL query. It's basically like one-to-one correspondence. It's like almost like same thing. And uh, in TypeScript, we, we just focused on TypeScript first, then Python is next. But for TypeScript, yes, you reflect your schema with just one uh, command line command, and uh, in VS Code, you now have full autocomplete. You can express your queries in TypeScript, no matter how nested they are, no matter what kind of com- computation you do. It's still the same idea. Whatever query you build in your TypeScript is gonna be just single SQL query, just single single SQL query. It's gonna be fast. And you have full auto-completion. And more, you actually have full uh, return type inference. So you don't have to type anything. You have a query, your VS code and TypeScript, they will know the the the, the, the type of the data that's gonna be returned. It, Interesting. Works like, okay. it works like magic. We're gonna see if we can replicate this uh, experience with uh, Python and MyPy. This is gonna be our goal. Uh, to make something like this happen. Right now, we just have this low-level, well, relatively low-level client API for Python. You can run any HQL query, you can get data for it, you can do it in async or sync, entirely up to you. But the typing integration specifically isn't there. And second (laughs) part of this question is that we are looking in future implementing a language server protocol for HDB. So install HDB locally and then VS Code would just connect to it. And then you would have your complete for HQL queries, for schema files. This is going to be great, but I'm just not sure like what kind of ETA we can put on it Probably right. not for okay. 2.0.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. Very neat work on HDB, and obviously all the building blocks that we talked about at the beginning. Congratulations. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, you bet. All right. Very quickly, lightning round, like quick favorite editor. VS uh, Code. Although I enjoy Veeam as well. Right on. And then notable PyPI package. Uh,
1: I'll list mine, (laughs) you All right? I'll list my my Pi as well. My Pi
0: is is a great thing. Use my Pi. Cool. Right on. All right. Final call to action. People are interested in any of your projects, probably primarily EdgeDB. What do you say? How to get started? Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's ready for you. It's uh, 1.0. It's uh, it's, it's stable. Follow us on Twitter. It's Twitter edge database Uh, without any underscores or dashes, just edge database. Follow us on Twitter. You will uh, find the Discord link right in the Twitter description. So join our Discord, we try to grow a community, and uh, yeah, build something amazing. HDB, I can say it like uh, with full confidence, HDB is the most amazing thing that ever happened to relational databases, so take a look at it. This is the beginning of, hopefully, a big movement.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Let me put in one final PostScript question, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I really wanted to ask you this, and I think it matters for people considering adopting it, but do keep it super quick. What's the business model like? When you guys release this thing, is it how do people get it? Will there be a free version? What's the story? So, HDB is fully
1: open source. Uh, it's Apache two license. It's extremely permissive. No strings attached. We'll make money by running HDB for you. Essentially, we will have a hosted right. version
0: of HDB. HDB is a service. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And this is yeah. how most database companies make money these days. Uh, it's not yep. anymore about enterprise version of your database uh, so much. It is about hey, can you run this? Uh, database for us at the private cloud, right. this is what businesses want.
0: Back it up, scale it, give us exactly. all that kind of back- exactly. magic. Exactly, okay. so we're actively awesome.
1: working on that. Although, you can run HDB right now on top of uh, Aurora Postgres, RDS Postgres, and Google Cloud. We have guides for that, so if you need to deploy your HDB application, we have your back. But we will have this like native, proper cloud version of HDB. But with which you will be able to just, with, like with one terminal command, you will be able to bootstrap a cloud database for yourself. It's going
0: to be amazing. All right. Fantastic. Thanks, Yuri. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering, it really helps support the show. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code talkpython, all one word. Add high-performance, multi-party video calls to any app or website with SignalWire. Visit talkpython.fm slash SignalWire and mention that you came from TalkPython to me to get started and grab those free credits. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.